0: Oh, Good morning. Hey, let's get right into it, yeah? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 7 through 10. Um, and I'm just going to read verse 6 just so it makes sense what we're reading. So we'll start in verse 6, we'll read all the way through verse 10. I'll give you a, I'll give you a second to get there. Everybody ready? Okay. (laughs) Okay, Paul says this, starting in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Here's our text for today. Therefore do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Jesus, the Son of God, prayed to you. In the Gospel of John, when he spoke of the church and he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So Lord, when we gather around your word, we gather not as people looking for a lecture necessarily or points of information or even good morals to live by. We look for sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, as far as anything depends upon us, Lord, by by grace alone, we ask, Holy Spirit, sanctify us according to the truth, that as we open up your word, you would open up our eyes and our hearts to understand what the Spirit would say to the church, that we would not just look at it with ears that hear. but that we would do that which you have called us to do, knowing that everything that you say is so good. And so I pray, Lord, that we would hear your word today. We would eat your word today like bread, and we would obey your word today. That you would teach us what it means to be a church in covenant with a holy God in a kingdom that is expanding across the coastlands. Pray that you would teach us those things today, that you would open up our, our hearts and our minds to hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So we're a, we're a few verses into chapter five. I know a lot of you have been here uh, with us as we've been going through chapter five, chapter four. I just want to give you a quick recap uh, about where we're at so that you know what these verses that we're, we're studying today mean. Chapter 5 starts as a picture of, you could call it, God's kingdom breaking forth. God's kingdom is breaking forth in the ordinary rhythms of our lives. So our relationships, our jobs, the way we interact with our spouses, with our children, with our coworkers, on the road. In our vocations, the kingdom, the supernatural kingdom of God is breaking forth in a real tangible way in some of the ordinary rhythms of your life and my life. And Paul is telling us what it looks like for us to align ourselves with that. And he starts in chapter 5, if you remember, that, the, the picture of that is, is that we are to imitate God who is at the head of that kingdom. Every kingdom, every dumb needs a king. And so our kingdom has over it Jesus Christ, and we're told to imitate him. And we see that that motivation comes from the fact that God is not a taskmaster. He's not an angry boss. He's not your employer. He's not your mean brother, your older sibling. He's a loving father. And so everything changes right there. You want to do everything that God tells you to do because you know that everything he tells you to do comes from a place of deep profound, self-sacrificial love. In fact, the next verses would tell us that His love is not like the love that culture speaks about. It's not like the love that we hear on the uh, uh, top ten pop hit tunes, but that love is an other-centered, self-giving love that comes from our Father. So in contrast to that, we see that any other way that is outside of the will of God, and God calls it sin, sin, works against God's love in our lives so in order to peel away that sin remember God's kingdom is 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 breaking forth so we we've often referred to this as that which is here but not yet Christ has inaugurated the kingdom, but it's not yet consummated. And so we live in this tension in which Christ is sanctifying us, but we're battling and dwelling sin. And Paul tells us, so we saw this last week, that that sin is working against the presence and the love of God in our lives. So we are charged to constantly be learning who our identity is in God as children of God. That's our task, is to go back to what it means to be a child of God, to trust in Christ for our salvation. And, of course, we saw this last week, to fight our old sin nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. And So that's that's kind of where we've come in chapter 5, although I, I took four hours to say that in the past few sermons. And so now Paul... Going down a, slight, a slightly different path is, is now speaking about other people. If we're speaking about the kingdom of God, I love how one person put it, Graham Goldsworthy, he said, The kingdom of God, in the most pithy, simple way that you can put it, is this it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so we've been looking through chapter 4 and chapter 5 what it means to be God's covenant people in God's place under God's rule. And so now in verses 7 through 10 Paul is saying there are people who are not under God's rule that you know about. And you are not to partner with those people. The church of Jesus Christ is a completely different community from any other community on the face of the planet. We're different. There's similarities, which we'll talk about, but there is an otherness about the body of Christ that we need to be keenly aware of. We're set apart, we're sanctified. God's people and God's place under God's rule. And we are not to partner with, or literally to identify with someone by doing the things that they do, by behaving the way that they behave, by loving the things that they love. We're not to partner with them in that way. Anyone who lives outside of God's rule. Now, at this point, the question follows for a lot of us. One we've been asking for centuries. Well, if that's true, if there's an otherness to the church of Jesus Christ and everyone else, what is my relation? What is my relationship? What does that look like? What is my relationship to people outside of God's rule? Because let's face the facts. Most of you interact in some very real way with people who don't obey God, right? For some of you, it's your job from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock or whatever it is. For eight hours a day, you are with people outside of God's kingdom. So what does that look like? It's not like you can ignore them, or maybe you do. That's the question. What's it look like on Monday morning when I wake up and I am immersed in a world that rebels against God? How do I interact with those coworkers, that boss, those siblings, that uncle, my friends, those next door neighbors? That's a natural question for us to ask, and it's one that the church has been wrestling with for centuries. All the way back to the day when Jesus was walking the, world, the earth, Israel would have been separated into a bunch of groups of people who were wrestling with this kind of question. It wasn't the Israel that Moses would have known, just a million people just following Moses, everything that he said. In the first century, Israel would have been separated into compartments of sects of Jewish people trying to understand what it looked like for the people of God to be in the world. You know some of them. The Pharisees were one of them. The Pharisees were that branch of Judaism that just had this insatiable thirst for holiness and righteousness. They knew, oh, the people of God, we are different than the rest of the world. But they took this ideology to a fault. So the Pharisees would have taken this as a a charge to combat the rest of the world. We are sanctified. We are holy. We are set apart. Everyone else is not. And so we must be hostile towards them. They took that countercultural mindset to a fault. Of course, John, in John chapter 3, verse 17, would say the exact opposite of this For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We might not have Pharisees in the 21st century, but we do have those who have a tendency to be on the defensive or on the offensive, even worse, when it comes to anything outside of the church. We see all the extreme forms, right, on the news and in the newspaper, those people picketing, saying that God hates the rest of the world. And we look at them and we say, well, that's, that's horrible, that's not us, though. But how many of us, when we see People outside of the church or people whose lives don't match what we think, uh, what we think a, a life should uh, express and reflect tend to go on the offensive when it comes to those people. Ah! On the far end of the spectrum of the Pharisees were the Sadducees. If the Pharisees' entire uh, position and posture was to combat the world, the Sadducees' posture was to conform to the world. So these were, the, these were the aristocrats of Israel, these were the high priests, these were the people in the temple, not so much the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the professors, so to speak, and the scribes. These were the high and mighty in the nation of Israel. And these wanted not to combat the world, but to conform to it, to, uh, to accommodate it, to take it on, to contextualize themselves. And they also did this to a fault. In fact, if you read some of the Gospels, you see some of the high priests and some of the aristocrats of Israel doing it to to such a fault that when Jesus is being handed over to die, they give him over lest Rome take over Israel. In fact, at the height of their accommodation, at the height of their folly, they would say, when uh, when Pilate would say, do you want want me to crucify the king of the Jews, the Lord, your Lord? They would reply, we have no Lord but Caesar. Accommodating and conforming to the world to a fault. What's this look like? In our day and age, well, it looks like us trying so hard to please the world, maybe even with the best intentions. I want to be missional. So I'm going to do everything that my next door neighbor does, including sin, I'm going to look like them, I'm going to behave like them, I'm going to sin like them in hopes that they will see something in me that they can agree with. The problem with that is that when the world is caught at the end of their rope, at the destruction of their own sin, what, would, what do you think would make them look at a Christian who looks just like them and think that they'll find hope in your life? Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if the Pharisees were combating the world and the Sadducees were conforming to the world, there was a group of uh, Jews called the Essenes who did exactly the opposite they looked at the They looked at both groups and they said "You know what we're just going we're just going to run up a mountain and hide so instead of combating instead of conforming, they cocooned themselves, <laughs> hid themselves, and began to sing songs and worship and write scripture and hid in their Little room never to see the world or their fellow people and neighbors again. What's this look like today? Well, it looks like those who are so afraid of the world that they never go into it. Perhaps you surround yourself with a Christian subculture because you don't want to get your hands dirty. You have created for yourself a a, a Christian Disneyland where you listen to Christian music, you wear Christian clothing, you hang out with other Christians, you speak Christian lingo, lingo and Christian language, you do Christian things, you go to Christian programs, you hang out at the church all day, even when it's closed, you're like on the porch hanging out at the church. All you know is the Christian lifestyle with Christians in a Christian subculture, and you've never once talked to someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. That's what the Essenes did. Paul says, actually, I want you to read this for yourself. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where he tells Christians, he tells the Corinthians, he's speaking to them about sexual immoral behavior, and he says, I don't want you to associate with sexual immoral people. Well, look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Listen to this. I did not mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, go figure, you would have to leave the world. (laughs) But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, Hmm. who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Remember, he's not talking about the non-believer. He's talking about fellow believers that don't live like it. Listen to this. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. Paul is speaking about a holy purging A sanctification within the body of Christ where we keep each other accountable. Nowhere does he say, you need to go outside of the church and get on other people's case. Nor does he say, you need to cocoon yourself on a mountain and write scripture passages and never talk to anyone outside the church building. To do that is silliness. And this is what it looked like in the first century for many Jews. Now here's the funny thing. There is a glimmer of truth to all three of those groups. The Pharisees had something right. The Christianity, by its very nature, is countercultural. It is, by its very nature, hostile to the things of the world. If you're a friend of God, you have enmity with the world. The Sadducees had something right. They were in the world with non believers. Even the Essenes understood that there's something different about the Christian community, that we are called apart. For the glory of God. Their problem was taking that, turning it into an ideology, and taking one strand of the way of Jesus Christ to its extreme conclusion. D.A. Carson wrote a book called Christ and Culture Revisited, where he looks at all of these varying degrees, these varying positions, which we still do today. We either combat the world or we conform to the world or we hide from the world, we cocoon from the world. He, he goes on to write in this book that our problem is that we are too reductionist. We take one sliver, one element, and we make that the main thing. We either remove ourselves from worldly things like the Essenes or we are in opposition to the world like the Pharisees or we must transform culture by contextualizing like the Sadducees. But the rich complexity of the story of the Bible is that it's often all of these operating at the same time. And all you need to do is look at the life of Jesus to see that. I just want to tell you, just tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or whatever, Open up your Bible and read a gospel and just look at Jesus. Just look at the ways, specifically, how he handles sinners, which is everybody that he talks to, right? Look at how he handles them, the rich people, the poor people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, his own disciples, the high priests, Nicodemus, Pilate. Look at the ways that he handles their sin. Unbelievable. Turn to John chapter 17, verse 14. Keep your thumb in Ephesians because we'll be back there. I want to read to you, there's a lot of examples of Jesus' life as he calls us to imitate him. I want to I I read with you a section of the high priestly prayer. Now when Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, what he's doing at the end of John is he's praying to the Father... For his people, God's people in God's place under God's rule, He's praying for us. It's a powerful thing for God to be praying to Himself for us, because everything He prays comes true. Listen to what He says in verse fourteen. Just, just don't think too hard about this. Just let it wash over you. Verse fourteen: I have given them Your word. The world hates them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. I sanctify, themselves, uh, I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so the world may believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Look at all the stuff that's going on right now. Just from Jesus' prayer over our behavior in a countercultural society, he's saying we should be truthful yet inclusive. Right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I have sent them into the world with that truth. He's saying we should be confrontational but embracing. There's this paradox going on. Verse 23. I am in them, you are in me, we are in each other together, there's all this stuff going on, I can't even explain it. May they be made completely one so that the world would see their unity centered around me and in that, they will know that God loves them. Confrontational yet embracing. You know how James says that true religion in the sight of God is this, to love on widows and orphans and to remain unstained by the world? Jesus would seem to be saying in this passage, you are to be unstained but messy. This doesn't make sense. You're to be unstained, but you're to get your hands dirty. He says the world hates you because you're not of it, unstained by the world. But I am not praying, Father, that you take them out of the mess, but that you just protect them from the evil one when they're in the mess. Truthful but inclusive, confrontational but embracing, unstained by the world but messy in it. Our problem isn't that we don't want to be like Jesus. Who in this building doesn't want to be like Jesus? Non-believers want to be like Jesus. Our problem is that we can only handle a part of Jesus because he's too much for most people. Some things to think about. If what Jesus is saying is true, and if we were to actually do what he told us and to imitate him in everything that he did, we should find a couple patterns emerging from our lives. One, and I could ask this of myself, if we find that everybody on the face of the planet loves us, we might have a problem. Because Jesus was hated. But if we find ourselves hated by everyone on the planet, we might also have a problem because Jesus was loved. That doesn't even make sense. But he was loved and hated. He was persecuted and enjoyed. He was worshipped and he was chastised. He was beaten and he was embraced. So if everybody loves us, it might mean that we're not very confrontational. Now when I say confrontational, I don't mean yelling at people in the parking lot. I don't mean uh, picketing people when you disagree with them and yelling at them and screaming at them and getting in their face and telling them uh, how, how sinful they are. Because the gospel by itself is confrontational enough. Meaning that if you believe the gospel and you talk about the gospel and you talk about Jesus and you enjoy Jesus, you will already be confrontational. So if everyone loves us, Maybe we don't talk about the gospel enough. Not always. Maybe you just have I- exceeding favor from God. But maybe for some of us, we do not speak about the gospel enough. But if, if we're always getting persecuted, the, the Bible promises that we'll be persecuted. But if we're always getting persecuted, if everyone we've ever meet hates us, maybe it's because we're not very embracing. <laughs> Say, well, no, the cross is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's true, but maybe you're being an extra stumbling block. Maybe you're the speed bump in the parking lot on the way to the stumbling block of the cross. The gospel by itself is powerful. The gospel by itself saves those who God is saving, and it is a stumbling block to those who do not believe. All we're called to do is enjoy Jesus and to be just like him. So if we find ourselves being hated by everybody, maybe... We're not as embracing as we should be. If nobody needs us, maybe we're just a typical scene. Maybe we're hiding out. Maybe no one needs us because we hang out in our apartment all day long listening to worship music. All of these broken ideologies come from a truncated version of who Jesus is. Jesus is radical. Jesus caused a stir. Jesus shook up the religious establishment. He shook up the governmental establishment. He shook up everybody. And yet tax collectors and prostitutes and all the people who are awful at life seem to be drawn to him. Are those same people being drawn to us? Our prostitutes and homeless people and tax collectors of our day. Or the sexually broken. Or the corrupt. Or the white collar thieves. Or the violent. Or the deadly. Or the criminals. Are they being drawn to us? A truncated view of Jesus will always give you a truncated life in this world. And we've been called to more than that. We've been called to a robust panoramic view Of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. (laughs) In fact, we've been called specifically, probably the best word to describe what we've been called to be as far as vocation. If you want to answer that question, what's my relationship to those outside of the kingdom of God? What's that look like? We could say that we've been called to be ambassadors. An ambassador is someone living in one country and representing another. I want you to imagine for a second, without laughing, that I am the American ambassador in China. That for some odd reason, the government has chosen me to represent the United States of America. That should never happen. (laughs) But if it did, what would that look like? Well, first of all, there would be nothing inherently special about me, right? Just Chris Lazo. I don't know my left hand from a right hand. But the second I step off the plane onto that tarmac in a different country, I'm not simply Chris Slazo anymore. I have upon my shoulders the weight of an entire country. So much so am I identified with that country, even though I'm not there, even though I'm in a different one, so much so am I identified with that country that I can speak on their behalf. So much so that if I speak wrongly, I speak wrongly against my country. So much so that when I speak, I don't speak any longer as Chris Lazo. My life is no longer mine anymore. I speak on behalf of another. Now I am not the president, I'm just an ambassador, but I speak so identifiably with the president of the United States that I speak on his behalf as if he were there in my place speaking. So I better get his words right. Not only that, but if I am representing one superpower to another superpower, I better be very careful about the things that I say. I better brush up on my vocabulary. I better be careful about the way I address others because no longer are my words reflecting my own life and my desires and my ambitions. I am now reflecting a superpower. Now that analogy falls apart because there is no cosmic superpowers battling. There is God. And he is expanding his kingdom. He's furthering his kingdom. And he will one day consummate it with his people in his place under his rule. But we are ambassadors. Paul would say in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of a sudden, I am Chris Lazo still. I'm not Jesus. I'm Chris Lazo, but all of a sudden, I am identified with the kingdom of heaven as though Jesus were standing in my place. And every word I say represents the kingdom of heaven as if he were speaking right there. I have all the authority, all of the resources of heaven backing me up. I have a lot of power behind me. And a lot of power behind you is a dangerous thing if you're narcissistic. And that's another thing that God takes care of. At the very beginning, when he changes your identity. See, you're not just an ambassador doing your own thing. You're an ambassador who, for the first time, no longer cares about yourself. Look in our text in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, for you were once... I love this. I love this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. We're talking about a change of identity. We're not just speaking about an exchange of titles. We're speaking about a change of identity. Think about it for a moment if you are single and then you are then married. You're not just switching titles around. Your life changes, man. (laughs) You were married and now you're a parent. Your life changes, bro. Think about if you were poor and you are now rich. Things change. You were blind and you now see. Things change around you. Let's say you were a student, but 10 years later, you are a professor with tenure. Your life looks completely different than it used to be. It's the same on an eternal level for you and me. It's not just a a change in vocation, a change in sight, a change in finances. It is a change in kingdoms. In which you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You have switched kingdoms. Paul, in other words, is saying, now that you are this and you are no longer that, act like what you are. Because you are. At the end of that sentence, he says, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he's got this. Parenthetical statement for the fruit of the light results in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then he finishes his sentence, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, he's saying, walk like what you are, children of light, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. All of a sudden, something fundamental has changed in the life of a person who sees Jesus in a salvific way. Your desires have changed. You used to be, as chapter 5 told us, lustful and self-indulgent. Now you are self-sacrificial and other-centered, supernaturally by the grace of God. What Paul is saying is that a change in identity always leads to a change in desires. If you know Jesus, you are all of a sudden all about Jesus. You are identified with a different kingdom. Paul would tell the church in Philippi in chapter 3, verse 18, I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. We are citizens in heaven. We just don't live there yet. A change in identity leads to a change in desires for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You don't You're not a citizen of this planet anymore. You just live here as an ambassador. You have a holy calling. That means you don't need to be clergy to have a holy calling. That means you don't need to be an overseas missionary to have a holy calling. That means you don't need to be in a place of power or extreme influence. You could bag groceries at Trader Joe's and live according to a holy calling on your life. Because you are representative of an expanding kingdom that is breaking forth right now. And that itself will help us to navigate some of those turbulent waters of culture. Well, how do I, you know, I'm a, I'm a bus driver. How does living according to God's plan and God's mission and God's holy calling look like for me driving a bus? I work the, the, uh, the register, the checkout at a, a local grocery store. What does it look like for me to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, to live on mission? I, I do extreme sports. I have to use my body. I don't get to speak very often. What does it look like for me to live on mission in the kingdom of God? This is how we find out. Not so much being caught up with how to do things right, but how to love Jesus more. How do we navigate issues of sexuality that are contemporary in our culture? How do we know uh, when a, a non believer living next to us is living in sin? Do we speak out the truth or do we just live out our worldview and hope that they see it and they're allured by our love? How do we do these things? These are questions we've got to ask, and we don't know how to do it perfectly. We're trying. We're wrestling with some of these things, but we can say at least with certainty that it starts with enjoying Jesus Christ, that everything else will fall in place as far as behavior and vocation and mission when we've got this down. It means that we're enjoying the word of God. That we're actually opening up the word of God and we're discerning what God is speaking to us in our life right now. And you know what happens when you don't do that? You become a Sadducee. Because you don't know what God's will is for your life. You don't know what to imitate when you don't know what God is speaking into your life. And you, being a worshiper, will imitate something or someone. So what do you do? Well, when the current of the world is pushing against you with all of its might, you will go in that direction because no boat sits in a river going at full speed and just sits there in neutral. You either go with the flow or you backpedal with all of your might. So if you're not in the word of God, you will default to Sadduceeism. It means we're also enjoying the Holy Spirit. <laughs> For the times that the Bible doesn't tell you what job to take, and who to marry, and whether to move to Spain and be on mission or to stay here in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria Ventura, we follow and discern those things by the Holy Spirit who works in our lives the will of God. It means we're enjoying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That truth that even though we have God's word and his will, we understand that we break his will all the time. And when we break his will, our only trust, our only hope in this life is that God sent his son to die for our disobedience. And we immerse ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're reading just things that God has done for us that we just don't deserve. And you know what happens when you stop reminding yourself about the gospel? Well, you become a Pharisee. You start to think, well, maybe I can pull myself out of this rut by myself. Or maybe I am pleasing to God because I am so good at life. Because I do read my Bible every day and I pray and I'm so good at it. You become a Pharisee. And when you become a Pharisee, you treat other people like Pharisees treat people. You tell them that they need to work For the presence of God as well. It means we're enjoying community. It means we're enjoying the church of Jesus Christ. That we're not cut off from each other. Are you outside of Sunday morning. Locking arms with somebody. Who believes. Of the same mind and same heart. Are you breaking bread and eating. And sharing meals together. And laughing and joking. And praying for and weeping with. The body of Christ. It also means. means. That in our community, we must leave room open for those who are not saved. The nonce. Are we on a, at least a first name basis with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone within your industry that you work with. Do you know people outside of the church or are the only people in the whole world that you know and talk to other believers? You know why that's important? If you don't have any non-believing friends on the planet or at least people that you know and talk to, you easily become in a scene. You lose your effectiveness in the world because you don't have anyone to shine a light towards. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, of you and me, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, I put a light in you the light of the Holy Spirit and I'm working through you but you've got to get your hands dirty. Do hang out with one another. You have to but also save some of that time for people who do not know me. When Jesus Christ is that which flows forth from our life, when we are intimate with Christ, when we are enjoying Jesus Christ on a daily basis, when we are worshiping him and following him and loving him and glorifying him, and we step foot out into the world, we will exude a supernatural combination of truthful embrace. You won't have to try it. You won't have to be, okay, how can I be truthful and embrace and do the paka, paka, paka? You'll just step out, people will push your buttons and Jesus will fall out. Loving confrontation. A holiness that is not afraid of getting its hands dirty. We will be that city on a hill amidst our city that we love so much. Pointing the way out of the darkness. There's this saying that I used to use all the time that I now feel like is a little silly we used to say something of this nature we used to say you're you're so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good meaning you you spend so much time with jesus and just reading the bible and loving god that you just can't do anything in the world you're 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 so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good i've I've changed my mind on that listen to what paul says colossians chapter 3 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. It seems like Paul would say, some of you are so earthly minded, you're of no heavenly good, and you're only getting there by grace alone. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. What we need in this life is more of Jesus. And it's not this either or. It's not like we turn into Essenes and just read our Bibles and pray every day and love Jesus. It's not one or the other. Rather, we will be able to identify rightly with the things on earth when our minds are identified to things in heaven. So our task as Christians is to enjoy Jesus. And to teach others how to do the same. The more of Christ that you experience in this life, the more your light will shine brightly in the world around you. Heavenly Father, thank you for that. Thank you that you did not just save us and whisk us away. Although we could say with Paul, it is a better thing to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But it's better for you that we remain here. We would say the same thing, Lord. We long to be in the presence of Jesus right now. But you have seen fit to leave us here. And so, God, I pray for this body of Christ, for my brothers and sisters in Jesus and myself included, that we would not waste our lives from this point on. That we would understand that the kingdom of the living God is expanding like a storm that you are expanding your kingdom, you are building your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are making a statement about yourself that you are the famous one. And Lord, far be from us to sit on the sidelines and simply watch the kingdom expand without us. Lord, we would say, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we want to be involved. And whatever that looks like for us in our vocations, in our families, in our relationships, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would teach us what that looks like. But this we know. We want more of you, Lord. And we thank you that that is one prayer that we can ask that we will know will be answered by the power of your Spirit. More of you, Lord. We pray. You would pour yourself out on your church today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.